Hope your bike plans to come into the, the services next weekend. Um, the two services Sunday morning will be great fun. Uh, they'll be a little shorter. They'll be a, uh, the kids will be in here. They're always a trip. And then the uh, Christmas Eve services, the family service is 100,000 children will be in here for that one. And then the two services, the later services, will be more contemplative. And Brian is pulling out all the stops. He's bringing in extra musicians. The music will be incredible. I hope you'll make plans on being a part of making the church a part of your Christmas celebrations. We are continuing a study of the book of Luke because Luke has historically been kind of the central gospel as we tell the story of Jesus' birth. Um, it, it is, uh, as I mentioned last week, Luke, according to the prologue, was written by a man who did an extensive study of the life of Jesus, I believe, in his own quest for faith. And then as a result of that quest and his discoveries, he took the time to write this gospel so that Theophilus, his friend, and others who read it could be confident that what they were told was true. This, this, I believe, is the spiritual diary of a man who came to have faith in Christ, and he explains what he found and why he came to those conclusions. And last week, we looked at the famous annunciation scenes where Gabriel, the angel who stands in the very presence of God, came and spoke to Zechariah, the priest, in a miraculous circumstance and said, you and your wife will have a child named John who will be like Elijah. He will prepare the way for the Lord as prophesied in Isaiah 40 and other significant passages. And then that same, Abriel, uh, same angel Gabriel, or Abriel for short, appeared, appeared to Mary, this probably teenage girl, and informed her that she would be, among other things, alienated and ostracized from society because she was going to be pregnant outside of marriage during the betrothal period. And, and Mary is such an incredible picture of simple faith because in, in spite of news that would have made you or me struggle, she embraced it if it was God's will in contrast to Zechariah the priest. Now we turn to chapter 2, which is, is that part of the Christmas story that ironically I memorized in the first grade in public schools. It was that long ago. Um, and, and that those parts that Linus quoted on the Peanuts Christmas, so they got to be true, right? Um, if you will, turn to, Li uh, to Luke 2, not Linus 2. <laughs> it's been a busy week. It's been a crazy weekend. Um, first, I want you, we're going to look at, at this chapter from three perspectives, but each one points to the reality of how God works. I don't know about you, but one of the things I've discovered about God is He doesn't do things the way He should. In other words, He doesn't ask me. He, more often than not, God works in unexpected ways. You ever thought about how crazy it is that, that would you two sit down for crying out loud? I mean, really? I'm loosening up. I'm sorry. It was, I was boring in the first service. It's going to be better in here. The, the, um, have 
have you thought about how crazy it is that God chose to bless all of the world through one of the most insignificant peoples ever created, the Israelites, who have been disdained throughout history and multiple generations have sought to destroy in, in a postage stamp-sized country that is relatively insignificant except for who they are. I mean, it's just the most unlikely of places. And, and that God would choose to send his son that, first of all, that God exists in three persons while being one God, that's mind-bending, and then he chooses to send his son to become fully human so that he could not only identify with us in all of our weakness, but be an appropriate substitute for us in all of our failure. How crazy is that? And that, that he's born through an insignificant family of no count. I mean, if I were going to save the world, wouldn't, wouldn't you, like me, find the most powerful family, the most known family, the, the most incredible family, so all the world would turn and take notice? But instead, God chooses this crazy society and this insignificant family in an insignificant time, and he chooses to redeem humanity that way. And while Luke chapter 2 and the whole birth narrative is intended more than anything to tell us about Jesus, I think it also is a wonderful example of just how God works in ways that we wouldn't predict. So first, look with me at the shepherds whom I've called the distracted. Um, verse 1, in those days, Caesar Augustus, Augustus, by the way, means holy. He, that's because he was the first Caesar to declare himself God. There's a little bit of an, I think, an unintended, I mean an intended uh, contrast between the Caesar of Rome and the true king of Bethlehem. He issued a decree that a census should be taken off of the entire Roman world, and this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. And he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to their firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Tradition says that Jesus was born in a cave. And the church of the nativity in, in Bethlehem is built over that spot, we believe. Other scholars believe that it may well have been a small inn house that would have had a manger for keeping the animals inside during the night. I think the traditional site is more likely. But what it says is that he was born an unlikely birth in an unlikely place and certainly with not the dignity that the king of the world would deserve. He, he is born and placed literally in a feeding trough because that's the only place that Mary could find for him. And it just seems a little anticlimactic, doesn't it? We have Gabriel showing up and announcing his coming and hosts of angels proclaiming his greatness 
and then he's born and laid in a manger. Verse 8, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. By the way, some scholars will say uh, Jesus, Christmas could not have occurred in the winter. We don't know when Christmas occurred, but their argument is it's too cold up that high around Bethlehem to have had sheep there. The great argument against that and one of the more significant possibilities of this passage is the reason there were sheep there was that the shepherds were here watching over the sheep that were designated for the temple sacrifice. It would have been appropriate that they would have been toward Bethlehem. Bethlehem was only seven miles from Jerusalem. You can see Jerusalem from Bethlehem, and if so, these sheep represent who was being born when the angels appear. The angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah glory of the Old Testament, shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people, because today in the city of David, a Savior has been born to you, and He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom His favor rests. And when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened as the Lord has told us. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what has been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. I personally believe that Mary was one of Luke's sources because he repeatedly refers to her considering the things. Whether he spoke to her directly or through John Mark or someone else, we don't know. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. These shepherds, which according to later Jewish literature says, were the lowest caste of all of Jewish society besides lepers. They, they were, they smelled bad. They lived outside. They were famous for coming into town and stealing. And so of all the groups of human society in Israel, they were some of the most uh, despised. And yet God chooses to send angels to proclaim to them, of all people, the birth of His Son. One would think God would send angels to the Temple Mount, that the high priest would have been the first to be told that, that he would have been proclaimed this message because, after all, he could have gotten word out. But Luke, by recording this aspect of the story, wants to make sure that we see that God chooses to work through unexpected people, through unexpected ways, and among those he chooses to work are those who are insignificant because that's one of Luke's favorite themes that God has a special love not only for the powerful but for the weak, not only for the rich but for the poor, not only for the great but also the insignificant. And these shepherds represent that, and they hear the story and leave those sheep wandering around and go into town, and they find Jesus. And everything is as they've been told. 
So in the middle of them doing their business, God takes these distracted people and, and does something very unlikely. He, he tells insignificant people just what he's doing because that's what God does. The Apostle Paul speaks to this in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 1, verses 26 through 29. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. You know one of the reasons that God is just so hard to swallow? He refuses to recognize just how significant we are. He, he chooses to save us, to, to love us, not based on how good we are but in spite of how bad we are. That's hard to swallow. Each of us bear his image, and he has, has ordained from eternity that he would love us for that reason. But then when, when he chooses to introduce himself to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ, he, he doesn't send his son to celebrate how great we are. Instead, he sends his son to die for how broken we are. And that's just hard to swallow. I would just feel much better about God if, if, if Jesus came to celebrate our goodness. But he doesn't because we're not good. We're all broken. We have, we have great elements, great potential. We, have, we do good, but none of us lives up to the standard that we even hold other people to, all, all of us are weak and doubtful and fearful, judgmental of others. All of us have kind of got broken spots. And, and so when God chose to meet us, he did it in, in, in ways that just aren't what we would have expected. And one of the reasons he does that, one of the reasons God chooses to work in our lives, not only through our redemption, but in all of life in ways that we would never expect, one of the reasons God does that is because in doing that, he demonstrates that he's in control. Because one of the greatest things that keeps us from loving him and depending on him is we have to admit that he's in control. I'm convinced that most of the time when people will not embrace the Savior, it is not so much a matter of the mind as it is the heart, not so much a matter of the intellect as it is the will. Because, because if I'm going to embrace Jesus as the Savior of, God, of all mankind, I've got to admit that, first of all, I need one, and secondly, I have to do it according to His plan, while most of us would rather negotiate a deal with God on the terms of what we need to do to gain His acceptance and live up to that standard reasonably closely enough that we deemed that we were good, right? But God 
continually demonstrates in his scriptures and in history and in our individual lives that he does it his way before Frank Sinatra. Are you all still mad, by the way? These are my friends that I've harassed. Don't worry about coming in late. Unless I really like you, I won't harass you. <laughs> Unless you're Julie. I ain't harassing her because obvious reasons. Um, God always deals with us on His terms. And that's hard to accept. We struggle with it. And, and, and that's why his being so unexpected is so annoying. So first there are the shepherds who, so I could have three Ds, I called the distracted. But secondly, there are the devoted. Continue reading with me in verse 21. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name that the angel had given him before he was conceived. And then on the 40th day, the text doesn't say that, but that's what it is. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem, present him to the Lord. As is written in the law of the Lord, the firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two pigeons. There are actually two dedications in the 40th day. The first one is Mary presenting herself in the temple after the 40 days of impurity after birth and is reestablishing her right to worship in the temple. But the second one, as Luke points out, is the dedication of the firstborn to God, because the firstborn was always set apart separately to God prior especially to the Levitical priesthood. So here, uh, Luke wants us to know that Joseph and Mary are very careful in their obedience to the law. This is a family that cares deeply about God and about obeying Him. By the way, the fact that they gave a pair of doves indicates that they weren't the wealthy. Uh, in the Old Testament law, when it specified what offerings should be given for a newborn, the doves was God's uh, way of providing for a sacrifice for those who couldn't afford the larger, more expensive animals. Verse 25, and there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, and he was righteous and devout. And he was waiting for the deliverance, for the consolation, for the comfort of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was on him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took the child in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation of the Gentiles and the glory of the people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Simeon blessed them and said, 
to marry his mother. This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Isn't it interesting that Mary is recognized in chapter 1 as very, very special, but that doesn't exclude her from a broken heart. You have this devoted man, Simeon, who, whom the Holy Spirit has revealed that he would live to see God's Messiah, and he's been waiting. By the way, that's, that's another way that God's really unexpected and is in his timing. He chooses people that we wouldn't expect, but then he chooses to act when we wouldn't expect as well. His timing is maddening. Can we say that? How many times have you and I prayed to God to act, and he says, got it, get back to you? You know, I'd like an email. This notification acknowledges having receipt of your prayer and is my full intent to act by such and such date at such and such time according to my perfect will in submission to yours. He doesn't do that, right? He, he, he does it when he wants. And Simeon's been waiting. He's an old man. And when he finally sees it, what does he say? I can die now because I have seen that, that one whom all of the Old Testament promised, I have seen that picture of what God will yet do. I, I can live. And then he turns to Mary and say, this boy is going to do unbelievable things. But your heart is going to be broken. So there is joy at Christmas. We sing joyful songs. We, we laugh. We smile. We give gifts. We celebrate children. We do all of those things, but there is also that reality that this child who is being born, the subject of all the celebration, is also being born to die because the story ends with his death on the cross and his resurrection, his victory, but by all human standards, a failed life because he's a king who never reigned in his 33 years. That's one of the things that's unexpected. God dishes out heartache. He allows the fallenness of the world in which we live to invade even our lives, and we experience heartache. And we pray that God will intervene, and sometimes he says, not yet. And we wait. Waiting is a part of following God. That's why the Isaiah 40, uh, those who wait on the Lord shall uh, gain new strength. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Because we, we, we've learned through all of history that it's in that waiting that our strength grows. It's in our, that waiting that we gain his power. It's in that waiting that we learn what it is to truly depend on him. Because if he always responded on our time schedule, we'd forget who was in charge, right? And God is jealous that we never forget that He alone is God. I like the next little story, verse 36, then there was also a prophet 
prophetess, we would have said. Now we say prophet. Her name was Anna, which is rooted from the Hebrew word for grace. The daughter of Phineal, the tribe of Asher, insignificant tribe up north. She was very old. Uh, she had lived with her husband seven years after their marriage and then was a widow until she was 84, or it may be she was a widow 84 years. The text is ambiguous. And she never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. She waited in her devotion at least 84 years in the temple. Waiting for God's redemption. Waiting for God to act. But that's what devoted people do. They keep acting, keep obeying, keep trusting, keep serving, even when the time schedule is outside of their understanding. Because after all, God gets to decide the timing. Finally, there's, if there is the distracted and then the devoted, finally there's the discerning, the teachers of the law. Verse 39, when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, and he was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. And every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. And after the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were aware of it, unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day, and then they began looking for him and among their relatives and friends. And when they didn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Verse 47, everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? They didn't understand what he was saying to them. He went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. Jesus grew in wisdom and stature in favor of God and men. Jesus is 12, one year from what today we would call bar mitzvah. At 13, a Jewish child steps into more of the responsibilities of manhood. His, his opinions, his decisions take on a different weight. He is yet a child, according to Jewish custom. They go up to Jerusalem, up because it's geographically up, for the Passover to worship. And when the group from Nazareth heads home, mom and dad just assume he's with cousins and friends. And, and it's not until they're away that they realize he's gone. And in the panic that all parents would experience, they, they head back to Jerusalem to find him. And they search in sheer terror. And on the third day, they find him. And he's in the temple. And the greatest teachers of Jerusalem, because those that would be camping out in the temple would be the most recognized, right? The, the, the greatest scholars of the day 
were sitting and having theological discussions with them. And in their discernment, they said, this boy's remarkable. Now, there's an irony in this because these are the very people that would end up being Jesus' greatest enemies. The teachers of the law, the scribes, the the leaders in the temple would ultimately be the ones that would call for his death. And I think Luke tells this story partially to demonstrate that when there wasn't power on the line, when it was just about the facts, Jesus was in fact exceptional in his knowledge of God and wisdom. They would resist him later on. Why? Because he was a threat to their power. But here in an unguarded moment, they had no problem in seeing this boy is something else. They were discerning. Later, they would be destructive. But Jesus comes along and in fulfillment of Simeon's words, Mary has already begun to experience the heartache of being the mother. Because Jesus life is not going to be devoted to living out her dreams, but instead living out God's plan for her. And Luke chapter 2, more than anything, wants us to see how God became flesh and lived among us so that we could behold His glory full of grace and truth. It is, it is primarily a theological statement by God of who Jesus is and why he deserves our admiration and even our worship because he is supernaturally born a God, according to God's perfect plan to accomplish God's perfect will. And when we come to Christmas, we not only celebrate the birth of a baby, we celebrate the coming of God to take on human flesh so that he could understand us, but more importantly, he could substitute for us. Because in his perfection, in his perfect life, he could pay the price for the sins. He could accept what we could not accept, and that's just how broken we really are. And then by his resurrection, demonstrate his victory over the death that so ensnares us. But it also is a great illustration of how God chooses to work. He just doesn't do things right. He doesn't do things according to human plan. He he confounds us continually. And I believe it's because we are constantly struggling to dictate to God how he must be God. We are constantly rebelling against his will because it doesn't go according to our desires. We want to tell him what is sin and what is good. We want to tell him what is right and what is not. We want to dictate the timing of his blessing and the abundance of his kindness. And we want to tell him how he should be God. And God sits in his throne room with his arms crossed and says, I will act according to my perfect wisdom. And you will gain blessing when you submit to it. We, we find God maddening. But ultimately, that's because we don't want to submit. But when we do, 
he doesn't send a Messiah who comes first with sword. Instead, he sends a Messiah who comes first with sacrifice. He doesn't send just a reigning leader. He sends a serving leader. He doesn't just tell us the price we must pay. He pays the price for us because His way is ultimately better. His heavens are higher than the earth, so are His ways higher than our ways, His thoughts higher than our thoughts because He is God. And Jesus comes in this incredibly unlikely way it means, in this incredibly unlikely time, in this incredibly unlikely story because it's one more illustration that we can find our greatest blessing when we stop trying to tell God how to be God, but instead learn what it is to submit to His love. The first step is trusting His Son, the one He said, sent. And, and if, if, if you haven't trusted Him, maybe today's the day. Maybe today is the day where you're willing to say, God, I stop dictating to you on how I can please you. I will instead embrace from you how you've dictated I should please you. I will stop trying to prove to you that I'm worthy of your love. Instead, I will embrace the love that you gave through your son. I will stop trying to prove how good I am. Instead, I will accept how broken and needy I am because you gave your son to fix my brokenness if I'll only embrace him. That's the story of Christmas. Please pray with me. Father, we confess that you confound us by your will. But we also confess that when we submit it to it, even when there's heartbreak, your will is always best. Thank you that you gave your son. And thank you that he died for us. Thank you that your perfect plan is better than anything we could think of. In Jesus' name, amen.